If you have your uh, Bibles today, uh, you can turn to Philippians, uh, the first chapter. And, you know, I was thinking of this. I'm like, you know, I always start out, many preachers, they do. You know, if you have your Bibles today, and I was thinking uh, many years ago, uh, after I graduated high school, I, uh, I uh, joined the volunteer fire department out here. And the first training we had to do was a 36-hour firefighting class. They said, we're going to teach you uh, just enough uh, to get yourself killed. <laughs> and that's pretty much what they did in 36 hours. They taught us how to put the air pack on, how to go into a fire, how to cut holes in a roof, and you know, basic fire behaviors and stuff. And, but one thing I remember distinctly from that class is they said, if you are going out to a fire and you, you never, ever leave that truck without a tool in your hand. And they said, I don't care if you like to grab one of the fire axes, that's fine. There was another tool a lot of us like to use. It was called a halligan tool, like a prying tool and stuff. They said, I don't even care if you grab a spanner wrench, this little wrench, but you better have that tool in your hand when you leave this truck. And there was good reason for that, because whatever tool you decided back when, when I was doing this stuff, we didn't have the fancy optics and things like they, they've got now. They can see through smoke. You were absolutely blind when you in, went into a fire, and you would take that tool and you would use that with another uh, person. You're going to be sweeping the floor looking for somebody on the floor. If something went wrong, you're going to use that tool to bust out of the side of the house and get yourself to safety. You know, and that's what I, I was thinking. I'm like, you know, open your Bibles. Well, don't come to church without your Bible. <laughs> it's your sword. It's the only tool that we've got. So, you know, I, I know we say that a lot of times, and I understand use an electronic Bible. Use something, but... Uh, please, you know, bring your Bibles. It's going to be able to uh, help rescue somebody one of these days. It's going to be able to help you get out of a sticky situation one of these days, just like that tool on the fire department. So when the preacher says, open your Bibles, if you don't have your Bible today, bring it the next time so you got something to open. Or bring a phone so you got got something to scroll through. I, I'm, I guess I'm okay with that, although... Uh, nobody's ever texted me on my Bible. Okay, so sometimes those distractions can be uh, uh, rough as well. So today, Philippians, the first chapter, uh, we're going to read uh, the ninth through the eleventh verses here, and this is just kind of where we're going to start. And it says, And this I pray, that your love, and this is Paul, his prayer for the Philippian church here. I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. Amen. So, like Brother Tony mentioned, before I moved over here to Newark, I worked 12 and a half years for a large manufacturer. Uh, one of the jobs that I had there, I was able to be intimately involved with the design 
and the uh, building of a factory and also the product. And to get to see that product go from the drawing board to the uh, production line and then off the production line. So for seven years of my career, I got to rub elbows with management and process engineers, facilities engineers, technicians, you name it. But what always astounded me is that there was this overwhelming complexity there. There was tens of thousands of parts that had to come together in the end in a usable product. And I'll tell you that uh, not all the time would things run smoothly. But when they didn't, they would have to send out one of those or many of the engineers, maybe the whole management team along with them, to find out one of two things. Are we not putting good parts in the front of the line to build this product? Or is there a bottleneck somewhere? And I tell you, when the line's down in a production facility, if any of you ever worked in a factory, everybody's hair's on fire at that point. It's an emergency. It's time to get things fixed. They don't sit around and say, gee, I wonder uh, if we should fix this today or go to lunch or maybe I'll fix it tomorrow when I come in. It'd be more convenient. No, thousands of dollars are going down the drain every second that line's down and they are working like crazy to fix it. So, Elias, if you can uh, bring up, I don't know if you can bring up my slide or not, but I, I want to... Eh, she's a little, little wonky there, but it's okay. Maybe you'll get the point. I want to bring this into the spiritual realm here. So recently, you know, I have really been burdened by the topic of fruitlessness. And that fruitlessness in the American church and also amongst us as individual Christians. You'll find many times in the Bible, it's speaking of us as a group and it's also speaking to us as individuals. You know, I agree with the brother the other day that commented that, you know, people today are maybe a little bit more receptive to the gospel in this present darkness. You know, we may have more opportunities. You know, perhaps the harvest has never been riper. However, you know, at this critical juncture, we are now seeing a never-ending stream of compromising and apostate churches we see congregants who claim that they belong to Christ, but they refuse to separate from worldliness. We see youth that are more enamored with Chinese TikTok than God's clockless eternity. And Christians with little zeal or interest in spiritual growth, let alone spreading the gospel. And just like that material assembly line that I was talking about a minute ago, we are now seeing far less than what we would expect come off of our spiritual production line, so to speak. And just like those engineers who have a fire under their butt to get something moving again, I feel that we too must diligently search out and correct the causes for our lack of fruit production. By now, you're probably thinking that I've lost it, but let me illustrate a little bit. And I had to even come up with this PowerPoint slide because I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be easy to illustrate just listening to me today. So here you can see on my little slide there, I've got Philippians, the first chapter up there. And we're feeding the machine here, so to speak, with knowledge. We have to start somewhere as Christians. We have to base our 
Christianity on something, and we base it on the Word of God. That's knowledge. We're bringing this knowledge in. And then people think, well, as soon as I've got this knowledge, this is the belief in the church today, I think, good things will come out. Or maybe they, they, they think, I don't even need knowledge. I need something else. I, I, I could use uh, experience. I could just uh, come to church. I could listen to somebody uh, tell me something. I don't really need to search it out myself. And I will get righteous fruit. I will get that sincere holiness. I will get uh, something out of my life that will glorify God. But they're disappointed. They're disappointed because there's another step in there that Paul is pointing out here in, in uh, the first chapter of Philippians to this church is that not only do you need knowledge, but there has to be a proper application of that knowledge to get anything good out of your life and out of your efforts. This has to be guided by, I got the rules of the factory here, as Paul says, is love. That's our standard operating procedure for how things need to happen. We have standard operating procedures in, in manufacturing. It tells us how to do something. We're going to run this machine. I know some of you may run machines at work, but there's a right and a wrong way to run that machine. Run it the wrong way, you're going to chop your finger off or your hand off maybe. Run it the right way and you're going to make your bosses happy because it's going to be making the product they want it to run. But in the middle of this, that machine that Paul's talking about that, gets, that uses the knowledge and it operates off of the rules, it's being operated off the rules of love, is our discernment. You know, if you don't utilize your knowledge, if you don't follow the rules, you will never get righteous fruit, a sincere holiness out of your life, and you will never glorify God. And I see this lack of discernment again and again and again in the church. We, we've heard wonderful preaching this week. You've stu maybe studied the Bible this week, but unless it's applied, unless, it's, unless discernment is utilized, you will never get the righteous fruit, holiness, and glory to God out of anything that you do. So you can shut that off now. I, that, was, that was all I, I needed to show. I just wanted to illustrate what I was talking about here. So on our spiritual assembly line here, we're feeding knowledge at the starting point. Love is our operating procedure and the way that we do things, and discernment is the mechanism or the machinery that turns our knowledge and love into products useful to God. You know, that righteous fruit, sincere holiness, glory to God. So if you're sitting here today thinking, Lord, I don't have these products in my life, I recommend that you start searching whether or not it's a problem with your knowledge. You know, maybe do you, have, you have to ask yourself, do I have a sound scriptural basis for my beliefs and attitudes? Is it a problem with your love? It could be that love towards God or others. Maybe there's even unforgiveness in your life. I remember Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she was a, a World War II Holocaust survivor. 
And she always said if there was somebody with absolute bitterness that could not come to Jesus Christ, she said the first thing she did was ask him, is there unforgiveness in your life? And she tell, has an amazing story. If you, if you haven't read her book, read her books because she has an amazing story of how she had to forgive even the Nazi camp guard that had beat and so mistreated her sister and her. She couldn't move forward. God could not use her until she had that unforgiveness out of her life. But say, you say, you know, I, I'm operating under love. I, I'm operating, uh, I, I have the knowledge. Okay, so the last thing there is your discernment. How are you applying your knowledge and love to your life and interactions with the world? A couple Wednesdays ago now, I preached on our superficial approach to knowledge and, to, and action. And I suppose if you want to, you can find about a million and one sermons out there on love. So today, I'm just going to be focusing on that machine, discernment. Um, if you uh, look it up in the dictionary, I like, uh, sometimes when I'm preaching, I like the 1828 Noah Webster's Dictionary, because he utilized uh, a Christian mindset when he was writing that dictionary, and a lot of the um, terms are, I think, better uh, illustrated in his dictionary than other places. But if you look up discernment, he says it's the power or the faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another, such as distinguishing truth from falsehood, vice from virtue. Or he says it could be the power of perceiving uh, the differences of things or ideas important in this day and age and their relations and tendencies. So where are they going to end up if I keep following this path? This is why we need discernment in the church. If we keep following this line of thinking, if we keep following these actions, where is this going to end up? My definition here uh, outside the dictionary is that Discernment is really the ability to apply our knowledge and experiences to a new situation and determine whether it be good or evil. In the Bible, you're going to see, as you're reading, uh, synonyms of that, other words used for that. You may see judgment. You may see understanding used to describe the act of discernment. You may also see similar words, such as knowledge, experience, wisdom. And there are subtle differences between those. You know, knowledge, like I showed there, is that database of facts and truth that we've gained uh, either through our study of uh, God's Word or it could be even the study of the world, observing uh, other people's experiences in the world. Our experience feeds into this as well. It's that database of truths and facts that we've gained by an active, lived consequence of our decisions and our actions, whether it be good or bad. There's many in here, I'm, one of, you know, I'm sure that you've done something in your life that didn't quite turn out as you expected. I hope you learned from that situation and didn't keep doing it over and over again. I think as Einstein said, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result. I hope you learned. So, 
Flip over, if you can, 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter here. And I, I want to answer the question is, is discernment necessary? You know, is it necessary? What happens if we don't have it? So the Corinthian church here, it offers a good study on what happens when there's a breakdown of discernment in the body, in a body of believers. You know, Paul, he had first visited this large Roman colony in Corinth for about 18 months. He actually labored there longer than most of the other churches that he visited. So there were a lot of Jews in that city because the Emperor Claudius had kicked a lot of the Jews out of Rome at the time. And therefore, I mean, it's just we're talking about the providence of God. So by the providence of God, uh, Paul's uh, biggest uh, initial congregation happened to show up at Corinth about the same time he did. And just by the providence of God, there were two tent makers that showed up just about the same time he did, Aquila and Priscilla. So the Holy Spirit used all of them, along with eventually Timothy and Silas, to preach to the Jews until the believers, which amazingly included Crispus, the leader of the synagogue... Were, these believers and unbelievers were thoroughly separated. And once that work was done, there was then a great work among the Gentiles, with justice allowing Paul to use his house and to preach out for uh, the remainder, or he preached out of his house for the remainder of his visit there. Thus, that church in Corinth was established. Things are good, right? Well, Paul moves on his missionary journey. He spent 18 months preaching and teaching with great trembling and, and fear and tears. He loved this church. He loved these people. He had poured out his heart and soul and everything he had into the preaching of the word there. So everything went well, correct? Well, the church in Corinth, after Paul left, developed some major problems. And, you know, Paul eventually hears of it. So apparently they had fallen into divisions, arguments, sexual immorality, selfishness, drunkenness, just to name a few. The bad news comes from two sources in 1 Corinthians here. There's messengers from the house of Chloe and also a letter that was written directly from the Corinthian church to Paul. And there does seem, when you look at it, I mean, it's interesting, the things when you're studying your Bible, you start to see, you see a division... In the, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first half, really Paul is dealing with uh, the issues that came out of the house of Chloe, and the second half is dealing with the issues that came uh, from the letter that was written. So he's answering those. But there's an interesting feature here in 1 Corinthians uh, <clears throat> that, that we see that I, I, I never saw before. I started to look it up, and it was interesting that there's many of the know ye not statements. If you read a different version, it may say, do you not know? Paul's trying to get the church's attention here. I, when I looked it up, that phrase is actually only used 17 times in the New Testament. It's used 10 of those times in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to see in chapter 6, there's 6 of them right in just chapter 6. And then there's four uh, in the book of Romans, which was written later from, from the city of Corinth. And then uh, there's a couple you know, smattered around the, the New Testament. But the do you not know or know ye not statements are prominent in this portion of Scripture. And we'll just maybe look at a couple. Uh, we'll look at uh, 
chapter 6, verse uh, 9 here. And, you know, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be ye not deceived. Therefore, fornicate, or neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. He's going down the list, of course. And then again, in, uh, in verse 15, we'll just look at one more. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then make them the, mem- the members of Christ? Or I'm sorry. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. So Paul's pattern here is this statement of alarm, getting the attention of the church. Do you not know? And then he gives the big picture of what they should have already known, and then he zooms in on the proper application to their life. You could say that discernment that they needed. So you can sense Paul's exasperation here and that there's a lack of fruit that he's concerned about. And the indication is that Paul is not attributing their ugly condition to a lack of knowledge. After all, he had just spent 18 months instructing them daily in the Holy Spirit. But from these know-ye-not statements, we can gather that the Corinthian believers had the knowledge but they were not putting it into practice to differentiate good from evil and fruitful works from harmful works. In other words, they lacked discernment. As Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not in words only, but it's in power. They had the words, but they had lost the power. So, is discernment necessary amongst Christians and in the church, I think, uh, is it uh, Brother Hawley says, you betcha. <laughs> you betcha it is. It's, there is an interesting pattern, though. When, and this is why you, you just got to love Bible study. Because there's an interesting pattern here that develops in these know ye not statements. Or do you not know? You know, he says, do you not know your God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are the body of Christ? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Now, people think I just read that from one scripture, but that's actually three scriptures spread throughout. That's why it's important to look at the context, look at the wording of what you're reading here. You know, what he's giving us a picture of, what he wants us to know, what he wanted the Corinthians to know, is that we are the temple of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you test yourself, as he recommends in 2 Corinthians 13.5, to see if, you know, if you're a believer or not, he says, unless you're a reprobate, he says, He's telling us that we are fully indwelt by the Godhead from head to toe if you're a believer. There is no part of your life that God does not touch or control. Therefore, as God judges rightly, why would you not also exercise wise discernment utilizing the faculties and the knowledge that he's given you? You know, I think it becomes abundantly clear here that Paul has properly diagnosed this church with a lack of discernment. 
He labored in their midst far longer than he spent with most of other churches. And now he is urgently and passionately addressing their lack as a father would reprimand his errant son. In fact, he was so forceful in this letter that in 2 Corinthians he discloses that he was anxious to hear back from that church. He had great fears that they had abandoned him and the gospel due to his bold and some say, may say harsh language. It demonstrates, though, the urgency that we must have when an individual or a body of believers begins to lack improper discernment. This is a deadly spiritual emergency that would be a spiritual equivalent of a pilot falling asleep at the controls of a passenger jet. Paul did not take this condition lightly in the first century church, and likewise, we should not take it lightly today. Our souls, our children's souls, and preceding generations of souls are all at stake. I think, you know, a lot of where I'm at today is coming from the decisions that great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents made a long time ago. And I'm telling you, how did they know to get saved? How did they know that they were sinners? Somebody had to preach the word. And they had to preach it faithfully. So, there's a lot at stake. And much, much worse, as Paul indicates here, much, much worse is at stake. The reputation of God there in Corinth was taking black eye after black eye. How much longer would God allow this to continue before he came into their midst as he, as he threatened the churches and the revelation, came into their midst and removed their candlestick and just left them in the darkness that they were allowing to envelop them? You know, Lord, help us today if we put a greater emphasis, where we should put a greater emphasis not only on seeking the knowledge of the word, but also having proper discernment to apply it daily to our lives. So now you're maybe asking a question. You know, if discernment is so good and it's so necessary, Brother Troy, why is everybody not doing it? You know, why, why do I look on YouTube and there's whole YouTube channels, you know, uh, dedicated to reporting on uh, apostate churches? Why? I mean, if this, if this is something that Christians should be doing, why, why are we not doing it? And think, let's think down to the micro level. You know, sometimes we, we like to apply things to, oh, that's how they do it. Think how you do it. Think, I'm thinking how I do it. Here's a good example of maybe why people don't exercise discernment. A while back, I was talking to parents of a young person in our church, you know, and they had that pained understanding, as I, I have as well, uh, you know, when their kids are wrongfully maligned, you know, they explained how their child took a, a gentle but a firm biblical stand. I believe it was on the subject of homosexuality. I'm not sure now, but took a firm stand on something in the classroom and was instantly, instantly attacked, not just by the students, but by the teachers and so-called friends. And these attacks continued out of the school onto what I call anti-social media. I don't think it's social at all. I don't think it helps hardly anything in society. But it continued outside of the school. So why do more Christians avoid using discernment? 
One reason is simply to avoid pain and persecution. You see, the world and the devil don't care how much biblical knowledge you obtain. Obtain all you want. They could care less you've been here all week listening to the sermons that have been preached. They could care less if you read your Bible. But I tell you what, the vampire fangs, the werewolf claws are going to come out when you take the next step and you begin using that knowledge to discern from right and wrong and then walking in that light and shedding that light abroad in the home, in the classroom, in the workplace, in the marketplace, and hey, maybe even in the church. Why is that the world's reaction? Let me illustrate this a little bit further for you from uh, 1 Kings, the third chapter. And if you uh, turn there, you'll realize this is a common story many of you are going to know. And I'll be closing here just just shortly. But uh, young King Solomon here, he's approached by the Lord in a dream, and he's told to ask for whatever he would like. Instead of riches, fame, etc., Solomon asks for an understanding mind to govern God's people, that he may discern between good and evil. The prayer is granted, plus all the other things that he did not ask for. And wouldn't you know it, as many things happen in the Bible, as many things even happen in our own lives, sometimes I'm... I'm afraid to preach some sermons because I'm like, I know the next week it's going to be a testing of that sometimes. (laughs) Hasn't stopped me yet, but I I, am always, I got my eyes open. I got my eyes open after this one. Because just like Solomon, he received that discernment and it was immediately put to the test. So we're just going to read the end of 1 Kings, the third chapter here. And like I said, you'll, you'll know the story. It starts in the 16th verse. And, it's, uh, and he said, Thus saith the Lord... Oh, no, no, no. I'm in Second Kings. I put my marker in the wrong place. <laughs> That's not what they said. 16th verse here. There we go. And there came two women that were harlots unto the king, and they stood before him. And the one woman said, O oh, my Lord... I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass on the third day that I was delivered, that this woman was delivered also. And we were together, there was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. She was negligent there. And she arose at midnight, and she took my son from beside me, while thine handmaid slept, and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my child which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then spake the woman 
who's the, was, the living child was, unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. She had pity, mercy. She did not want to see this child killed over this silly argument here. And she said, well, it wasn't a silly argument, it was a good argument, but she didn't want to see him killed. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and in no way slay it. But the other said, let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. So then the king answered and he said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And then I want you to pay close, close, close attention here to the last verse. And it says, And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. So, did you catch those words, those key words there in that last verse? They feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him, comma, to do judgment. I don't know about you, but I was surprised by these words. And this reaction, I figured that they would be high-fiving King Solomon... That they would say that the crowd, and the, the crowd rejoiced. They were pleased that God had given them such a smart king. But instead, great fear, or if you read other versions, it'll say awe of the king fell over the people. Maybe it's just our generation that has become so lax with hierarchies and resentful and disrespectful towards authorities. But I was not expecting this reaction. However... When you put it together with the context of 1 Kings 2, then things start to fall into place. This is why context is so important when you're reading your Bible. It says, I, ima or, I imagine that when that sword of judgment came out that day, a lot of the onlookers realized that they were standing in this king's midst with babies of their own that did not belong to them, and all of a sudden the spirit of fear fell upon them. It makes a lot of sense when you read that second chapter of 1 Kings, how Solomon, uh, so to speak, cleaned house. The incorrigible, I'm going to give some examples. In chapter 2, the incorrigible Adonijah, this was Solomon's half-brother. He was caught trying to steal the baby of the kingship of Israel and the promise of the Davidic throne, and Solomon had him executed. Though God had cursed Eli's family for their wickedness, Abiathar, his grandson, was trying to hang on to his baby of the high priesthood by supporting Adonijah against the will of God. The only reason he didn't get executed is because Solomon still had mercy on him for how he had uh, treated his father and he had served as high priest, but he was exiled. And then lastly, there was Joab, the evil commander of the army that thought that he would hold on to his baby, the role of commander, by supporting Adonijah again against the will of God. And he ran to the temple, or to not temple yet, it hadn't been built, to the tabernacle, and he laid his hands on the horns of the altar. Surely Solomon won't have me killed here. Well, Solomon sent his new commander of the army and dealt with the old commander of the army. And if you read of Joab, you will realize how evil the man was. 
killed two righteous men for really no reason. But he too was executed. So now you can notice they didn't mind it when Solomon was just smart and he was filled with the knowledge of God. And they certainly didn't mind it when they thought that he was young, weak, and stupid. But the game changer was when he began to do judgment. Or you could say exercise discernment. So those people who attacked this high school student in our church, what was their problem? Well, the cover of darkness was stripped away. They were exposed to the light, and maybe for the first time in their lives, they saw that their deeds were evil in the sight of God. There's a power beyond any one of us in this book. And when people are exposed to the light of the gospel, I tell you, in the light that is in the Bible, it has an incredible effect. It's something I, I can't even describe. I remember the first time I experienced this. I uh, had just gotten saved, and I was at work, and we had a, a, a woman there that was into uh, the Wiccan culture, you know, all that witchcraft and stuff like that. She had a, 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 a background, I believe, in the Methodist church. I don't know what happened in that church, but something terrible happened in that church to her. And she held that against not just the church, but against Jesus Christ all of her life. And she said, Troy, and she kind of got up in my face a little bit, and she said, you got, you, you know, you, you're talking about the Bible and all that stuff. You know, do you believe that Jesus Christ is truly the, the only way to God, that all else, all other people will be damned and sent to hell if they don't believe on Jesus Christ? And that's one of those ones when you're new, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> swallow. Yes. That's what the Bible, I'm like, look, I may not be the smartest guy. I may not have, I, I've grown up in church, but I may not have studied the Bible, uh, you know, to its fullest extent yet. I don't know if we'll ever get there. Uh, but I said, I know what the Bible says. It says what it says, and I have to believe what it says. And I've discerned these things to be true. And I, and I am telling you that the Bible says that there's no other way to the Father but through the Son, Jesus Christ. And there's that uh, passage, I think it's speaking of, uh, of Cain. I want to say, somebody, their face fell, it says. Their face fell. Man, that's not right. There's a passage in there. Their face fell, and that's exactly what I saw. I saw the life drain out of this lady. I saw her face fall. I wasn't intending that. I didn't think that that was going to happen. I wasn't expecting that. And it wasn't anything I said. It, wasn't, it was the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working on that woman. And this is, you know, church, we may have the Word, but if we don't have the power... We're not going anywhere. Nothing's coming out of our life. So, you know, there may be someone here today that's been listening to the messages this week and you really don't like what you're hearing. I imagine there's people who are not here today because they don't like what they may hear. Or maybe, you know, you can't read or trust in the Bible because some of its wisdom is conflicting with certain aspects of your thinking or your lifestyle. You know, maybe you're okay with the preacher while he's dishing out the knowledge, 
but now you're starting to sour on the thought of having to apply it because now the game is up. You have the knowledge. You must now search your thoughts, your motives, your actions to see if they fall in line. You must exercise judgment, not on everybody else. Jesus says we need to judge ourselves first. So we must exercise judgment on ourselves. And now, if any motive, thought, or action is found out of step with this word, you are 100% responsible to address it. You've got to take that before God. You know, don't, I, I, I want to be clear there. I'm not saying you fix it yourself. That won't happen. You take it to the one who can fix it. So I want to make myself clear there. You're 100% responsible to get it fixed. You can't fix it yourself. You better take it to the Lord. If you don't, you know without me even telling it, telling you it, that you're in willful disobedience to an almighty God. And don't think that you're going to play this world's new old trick, willful ignorance. You know, you hear, hear churches, I think, even now, congregants in churches, oh, we didn't know that the homosexual movement was about deviant sexual practices. We just thought it was another expression of God's love. Fly flags everywhere. James 4.17 says that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So hiding your head in the sand is not going to work either. You know, friend... I'm saying all of this because you are not the only one who will exercise discernment and judgment. You know, one of these days, Jesus, our great shepherd, is coming back for his sheep, and he will, in his righteous judgment, you know, sometimes our judgment is not well informed. Sometimes it's lacking. Christ's judgment will not be lacking on that last day. There will not be one jot or tittle of your life that was misrepresented. He's going to, it says, open his books, and he's going to open the book of life. He's going to judge those according to their works recorded there. The sheep he will separate to his right hand for eternal glory. The goats he will separate to his left hand for eternal damnation and hell. The question will be, are you the real McCoy mother that accepted and took care and nurtured the gift that God has given you, namely salvation through Jesus Christ? Or are you the imposter mother that thinks that you will slide by Christ in the judgment because you've been fooling everyone else for years? I urge you, please, exercise discernment now in discerning your true estate before Christ. You don't need to do it before me or anyone else, but before Christ. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. You know, do you, do you think that that person, that young person I mentioned earlier, who was persecuted for the sake of righteousness and the exercise of good judgment, will anyways lose their reward before Christ? You know, I can say, <laughs> with scriptural authority, not on your life. I say that we all need and I'm, I'm finishing now, so whoever, whoever's coming up to sing, you can start heading this way. I've got one sentence left. Maybe two, I don't know. 
But I say we all need, you know, of course, to get bolder in our exercise of discernment. We need to be feeding our lives with the knowledge of the Word. We need to be exercising discernment governed by a righteous love so that we may bear the fruits of righteousness, sincere holiness, and glory to God. You know, I... I guess one last thing. I don't have it in my notes anymore. I took it out, but there was a, uh, a saying by John Wesley that summarizes, I guess, Philippians 1.9 there. And he was, I, I realized it wasn't something he said when he was young. It's something he said when he was 60 years old. And back in the 1700s, that was something to be 60 years old. He was going to live another, uh, what, 28 years But he prayed to God this prayer, Lord, don't let me live to be useless. (laughs) And I tell you what, he went on from that day. He preached his last sermon, I believe it was less than a year before he died at 88. Lord, don't let me be useless. Well, if you don't want to be useless either, Get that production line fixed. If it's, if it's not spitting out useful stuff at the end, there's either a problem with knowledge, there's a problem with love, or perhaps, as is the case in many places today, there's a problem with discernment, the application of the two to glorify God. So I'll leave it with you, and I'll leave it with the song leader. Please.